Um, I have to give you the big picture to the story, and then we'll give you some details, because the best part about a story is when you've got the details. Like, if you can really appreciate a story, you have to have the details. But in order to appreciate the details of the story, I kind of give you a, a little uh, big picture about it. But this story <clears throat> is about Jesus, a male and a Jew, who encounters a woman who is a Samaritan, whose name we don't know, and they encounter one another at a well. And the story is about that encounter. And uh, the story goes on and unfolds with, uh, he, he starts the conversation. Matter of fact, she's kind of taken aback by the fact that he's even talking to her. And um, <clears throat> she's a little suspicious of him, and she, rightly should she be. Um, but he starts this conversation, and then he continues to kind of lead her. And actually, then she gets more responsive as she feels safe with him. Eventually, they get around to talking about religion. There's quite a bit of talk in the story about religion and her understanding and view of God. And then uh, Jesus um, begins to talk about and address some observations he's ma made about her and relates them to longings in her life. In this passage, he compares them to thirsts. And he begins to talk about the thirsts in her life and then how she responds to that. Okay, so that's a little bit of the story. Before you read it, let me just give you a little background as well because there's a little his history to, to get a handle on this. She's a Samaritan woman. Now, now, Israel, about 700 years before Jesus, had a civil war, and the country was divided in two. There was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called, actually, Samaria. And uh, so what happened was there was this northern kingdom of Samaria that in, in, order, in, in their effort to kind of separate from the southern kingdom, they, instead of having Jerusalem as a center of worship, they had their own city. And they got rid of a lot of the books of the Old Testament. They just took the first five books of the Old Testament and the rest of them they just threw out. And they began to have some, basically some different kinds of doctrines. And then what happened was that a country called Assyria, all these pagan, this pagan demonic country of Assyria, invaded the northern kingdom of Samaria and they carried them away into exile. And so over a period of a few hundred years, they intermarried the Assyrians with these northern Jews. And as their blood and their purity of their race was mingled, they were now called Samaritans. Now, Jews despised Samaritans from the north because they were half-breeds, first of all. And secondly, they had a lot of bad thoughts about God that weren't true. They threw out a lot of the Bible. And uh, so uh, they were unacceptable. So they said things such as, quote, um, all Jews don't eat with Samaritans. You'll get defiled. Anybody who, any daughter, any woman from Samaria is perpetually unclean. So this woman was not lovable for, th for four reasons. One is she believed the wrong things. Secondly, her race. Thirdly, her lifestyle. She was immoral. She had five husbands and she lived with another man. And uh, finally, she, her gender. She was a female. And in the days of Christ, women were <coughs> severely second, third class citizens. And uh, so it was, quote, as it says in the Talmud of that day, to teach women was as inappropriate as to sell them into prostitution. One should not talk with a woman on the streets, nor even with his own wife. Quote, it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. So this woman had really a number of strikes against her. So to understand why this gets a big chapter in the Bible, because it was so incredible what Jesus does by going into Samaria in the first place and then engaging with this woman who is not worthy 
and is not lovable by any standards of her day. And yet Christ crashes into her life and meets her, and as we'll see in a moment, transforms her totally. Take it away, my dear. Okay. <clears throat> so as we go into this passage, you're looking at an encounter between two people with almost a thousand years of attitude and bad blood between them. And there are expectations of how they should act and be towards each other. I'm beginning in verse 4, and I'm going to go to about verse 26. So listen to the story. Now he, he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be about 12 noon our time. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks the water, this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in that person a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so, that I don't have to, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come on back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have just said, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, um, I love this passage for many years. It's always been one of my favorite passages. And really for the simple reason that I so have always admired the way Christ was able to address this thick tension that was in the air. All the awkwardness, all the stereotype, and he, I mean, it was so thick you could slice it with a knife. But he 
moves through it. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't dress her down. He's not condescending. Because it's not easy to not have attitudes towards people. I think it's very easy for us to stereotype and be judgmental and be condescending. Um, but I decided that this time I was going to approach the passage differently. That instead of coming at the passage as uh, imagining being like Jesus and doing like Jesus, because most of my life I've heard this passage preached from the perspective of Jesus. I've been inspired from this passage to be like Jesus, um, to cross those cultural, racial, gender, and any personal barriers I have with other people. This passage has been my inspiration. But this time, I decided I wanted to uh, approach the passage by getting in it in her shoes. I wanted to get in the woman's shoes and imagine what it was like to be in her shoes and encounter him. And I had some surprises waiting for me because I really didn't think I had that much in common with her. After all, you know, she had been married five times. I have not been married five times, although I did realize I have had five different husbands, okay? <laughs> I have been married to one man, but he has been five different husbands, and you have had five different pastors. <laughs> because from the day of Pete's decision to follow Christ, his life is continually evolving and changing, as it should be for all of us, all of us who have chosen to follow Christ. So I have had five different husbands. But I also began to see that I could relate to her in other ways. Um, I realized that I sometimes feel a little cautious around Jesus. And I'm tentative with him. And like her in this passage, I begin to raise issues with him. And I have theological issues with him. But I was also beginning to experience, like her, that he was seeing me, and he can see me through and through. He sees right through me, better than I even see myself. And he was uh, accepting me. And I was basking in his love. And I was basking in his acceptance. And then the depression hit. I definitely have a bent towards depression. And I've become aware of that and have actually been able to accept that and, and, and allow God to come to me in my depression. And, but this particular depression, I can usually identify maybe why I'm depressed or if there's a reason or a rhyme for it. This particular depression, I, there just didn't seem to be a rhyme or a reason for it. But for those of you that experience depression, you know it's darkness. And it's just, it's horrible. It's just a horrible place to be in. And uh, life was an effort. I mean, I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, everything was an effort, and I felt very raw. And at this time, um, I was also, uh, I met with a friend, and I was sharing with her my experience that I'm depressed, um, 
and how I was feeling and how I was feeling, you know, I was just so guilty about not getting out of bed and having my quiet time. And she said to me, Jerry, do you think that you can let Jesus attend to you? Do you think you can let Jesus serve you? And I had a visceral response to that, a bodily reaction. And really what I was thinking was, are you kidding? Jesus attend to me? I'm supposed to be attending to him. I'm thinking, he's thinking, it's already an hour past dawn and you're not out of bed yet and have had your quiet time. And I'm feeling so bad and so guilty that I am letting him down because I'm not doing the right things that a Christian should be doing. At the same moment that I was having that feeling, I had this other illumination because I've been in this passage for months and letting it permeate in me that, oh my goodness, I have another thing in this common with this woman, that I disconnect my faith in my life just the way she did. I mean, one of the reasons I think he brings up to her, or he says to her, uh, go call your husband, is because he was gently leading her towards helping her see how her life and the way she was doing life was disconnected from who God really was. She was seeing God a certain way, her way, but that's not who he really was. And I realized in that moment, holy smokes, I have disconnects in my life too. And I'm living my life. I'm, I'm in this depression and I'm feeling guilty because I'm not doing the things a Christian should be doing according to what I've defined a Christian should be doing. And I've imposed that on God because those things that I have deemed good and right according to a good Christian are things that would make me feel lovable as a Christian or as a follower of Christ or good enough or accepted. And then I inadvertently put that on God and thought, if this is the way I feel about me and this is the way other people I think think you should be a good Christian, well, that's exactly what God must think and feel about what it means to be a good Christian. So it was a rude awakening. But here is my point. What I discovered in that moment and then in the, uh, in the months um, that continued in front of me, because, uh, because, of course, you know when one is depressed or you have loss or when life is not working for you or life is not going according to the way that you think it should, you want to be around people that are safe. You're finding out who your true friends are. I mean, in terms of who you can be with and let them see you even when you're not feeling great about yourself. And so what I discovered as a result of this experience much more deeply than I had previous to that particular depression was how safe Jesus is. So that's my point, simple but profound today. Jesus is safe. Jesus is safe. And then when I went back to the passage, when life wasn't working for me, I then was really experiencing 
how wonderful a person he was. So today, as we proceed in this passage, I don't want you to think for a second that you should be like Jesus or that you should do as Jesus does. What I want you to do is get in her shoes and experience Jesus because I do not believe that divine grace can be given away unless divine grace has been experienced. And so often our Christianity feels like yokes and burdens. Um, because I think we impose it on ourselves, but it's because we're trying to do like Jesus and we're trying to be like Jesus, but you're not experiencing him. This passage is about experiencing him. So when you're tempted to start imagining what it's like to be like him, put it out of your head and get in her shoes. I know that I'm saved, but I don't always feel safe around him. Feeling safe is an innate longing and desire, a thirst that is God-given. God put it in each one of us. We long to be safe with ourselves, with God, and with one another. But I certainly am not always a safe person. Just ask my husband. Ask my kids. <laughs> but life is not going well for this woman. And you know what? It wasn't going well for Nicodemus in the chapter before either. He didn't have her baggage in terms of stereotype of, of sort of being, you know, uh, a life that other people didn't approve of. I and mean, he was a prominent theologian. But he had questions and struggles, and all of a sudden he realized in his faith and it wasn't all, and life weren't all measuring up. But Jesus was a safe person that that prominent theologian could go to. It is not easy to be safe because we are judgmental, we are critical. Um, you know, if somebody hurts you, it's hard to see past the hurt or if they're harsh with you, it's hard to see past the harshness and to really see that they're acting out of longings and thirsts that they have. How do you respond when somebody cuts you off on the highway? All of a sudden, it's a gender issue or a race issue or some other issue or someone doesn't uh, treat you right in a store. All of a sudden, it's an issue that becomes personal. Christ, I want you to appreciate what he does here. I don't want you to try and be like him, but I want you to appreciate what it meant for him to glide into her life and not judge her and lovingly approach her. In this environment, he has a yes face. I spent four hours in an emergency room yesterday. You know what I did during that four hours? I was always looking for a yes face, somebody that would be approachable and not intimidating Someone who, who would not feel like I was bothering them and I could ask all my questions, not feel like I was obnoxious. Jesus has a yes face. He's warm. He's friendly. He's engaging. He's approachable. He's humble. Do you realize that the Lord of the universe of all the oceans 
says to her, can I have a drink? He's open. He's honest. He doesn't avoid the fact that her life is not what it could be. But he's respectful. He's genuinely interested. He's accepting. He's non-demanding. He is concerned about her welfare. He says the words she needs to hear. He doesn't judge or criticize her behavior, but he's looking deeper as to why life isn't working for her. You know what I would have said? Or thought, anyway. I probably would have, this lady goes through men like buckets of water, but not Jesus. He says and recognizes that she has longings and thirsts that only he was meant to fill. You know what? Maybe her motive with these men has been good. Maybe she really saw a man with a need or a person with a need and she was trying to meet it, really, genuinely try to care for this person. All of a sudden she got wrapped up. I don't know. I don't know her motive. But I know that it is God's acceptance, ultimately, it is God's acceptance, ultimately, that I need to feel lovable and good enough. But why is it? If Jesus is so safe, why is it then, the question, that I don't always feel so safe with him? Really, I, I have to be honest, I sometimes see him as uh, quite demanding. I mean, if I'm really honest, if I really sit and present with my feelings and thoughts and attitudes, sometimes I see him as impossible to please. Just take those beatitudes. We love those beatitudes. But I got out that ladder of humility, and then I was so discouraged and depressed by it because I couldn't get past the first rung, I said I just put it away. I said, God, you, this is, you're so demanding. I think that in order to be acceptable to him, I've got to give to the poor, I've got to do miracles, I have to be ready to die for him. Well, the reality is, I may know that I am saved, but let me tell you something. I have crises of faith when I have little disappointments. And the reason I believe that Jesus does not always feel safe to us is because we all have this baggage that we carry around. And this is the baggage. You and I were born into this world. As we progressed and grew, we became very good at learning what we needed to do and what we needed to be in order to feel accepted by others, in order to feel lovable, in order to feel good enough. We learned what we needed to do, what we needed to be, how we should act, the things that needed to be done, so that not even just, then it became not only with how other, so that others would feel that way towards us, but that we even believe it now. I believe that this is what I need to do, or this is a certain way I need to be in order to feel lovable, to feel good enough, 
to feel accepted. And, and, and here's the great, great danger. That we have actually taken those ways of thinking and feeling about lovability and being good enough, and we project it onto God. So it really eventually becomes, not only do I need to do these things or be this way in order to feel accepted by you and my loved ones and even myself, but I naturally internalize, and it's done unconsciously, I start believing and living that that's what I must do and be to be accepted by God as well. And that's where we have the disconnects with faith and life. And that's where we have the yoke. But Jesus said, my burden is light. But many times it doesn't feel like that. But I believe it's because we, we take God and actually make him in our image versus me continually being made in his image. My depression highlighted for me that disconnect for me. It highlighted the fact that I believed that I must do certain right things in order to be lovable by God, to be accepted by God. And you know what? I was like, you know what? I know this stuff intellectually, but it happened in my experience. And again, it really, who you really believe God is comes to light especially when life is not working the way that you think it should be working. And that's why Jesus is really the person for whom life is not working, which really ultimately is all of us apart from him. So what I want to introduce to you now is this tool called the Enneagram. The Enneagram, like other person, it's a personality inventory tool. There's many of them. There's Myers-Briggs, there's MMPI, there's 16PF, there's Taylor Johnson, and the Enneagram is another one. And um, it's actually been around for hundreds of years. And the Enneagram says that there's nine types of human beings, so to speak. You know, they take all the personalities in the world and they said, you can really kind of break it down into nine types. The reason that I love the Enneagram is that it helps me and hopefully will help you become conscious of what truly motivates you to make you feel lovable, what makes you feel good enough, what makes you feel accepted, because it's different things for different ones of us. And then again, the purpose of doing showing you this is to also show you then how we inadvertently, oh, start internalizing the belief that this is how God thinks and feels about me too. Okay? So, <clears throat> now, the Enneagram divides, they, they talk about people in numbers. Okay, so I'm a number one. And the number ones, we have the perfectionist, we could also be called the perfectionist, we have that perfectionist tendency. And we are motivated by the need to live life the right way. We want to improve ourselves and others. You know, things can go great, but we still see the cup half empty, not half full, because we're, we're always striving for higher standards. 
We avoid anger. For us, in order for us to feel, with, feel safe with Christ, we mistakenly think we must do the right things. We are about right and wrong. One of the greatest liberations for me has been, oh, there's gray. Oh, there's a gray part in life. That's been wonderful, and I have to keep, it's part of my discipleship and my learning curve in life. There's always gray, Jerry. Not everything's, you know, right and wrong, all right? Uh, <clears throat> the twos, sometimes called the helpers, you are motivated by the need to be loved and appreciated, to express your positive feelings toward others. You want to avoid being seen as needy. You want to be in relationship with somebody because you like to be needed. You need to be needed. As a matter of fact, you'll, sec you'll secure the relationship by, need by being needed by that person. So twos, in order for them to feel safe in the world and with Christ, they have to be helping others. They have to feel needed by others. So again, pay attention and see which of these might, ooh, strike a chord in you as we're going through. Threes, sometimes called the achievers, motivated by the need to be productive, to achieve success. Failure is anathema. Can't fail. It's a curse. Your identity is in the project. Always have to be in a project. Therefore, you feel safe in the world, and thus Christ, when you're accomplishing a project. Number four, the romantic, sometimes called the melodramatic, motivated by 